Well, speaking of fishing, I love, I love to fish. Uh, I love everything about fishing, and uh, I might not be as good at fishing as James is, uh, but I think I might love it just as much as he does. Uh, I have outfished him once, and you can come in, in once in like probably 20 times. Uh, you can come and talk to me about that. I'll, I'll, I will brag about that one. Um, but yeah, it's happened once, so I'm not, I'm not as good of a fisherman as James, but I do love to fish. And uh, some of you know, spent, we spent many years overseas as missionaries, and of all, almost 10 years living overseas, I never went fishing, zero times. I never went fishing because that was the one thing I wanted to do when I came back to the States. It was the one thing that I longed for and I, I looked forward to doing so much, especially trout fishing, like just getting out in the, in the hills over in the lacrosse area especially, just getting out alone and having time just to think and, and do nothing for, do something mindless for several hours. So that was the one thing that I never did. And whenever missionaries are getting ready to, to go back to the States for a while, like go on furlough or go back for something, that there's two questions that you always ask each other. First is like, what is the first meal you're going to have? And my, my answer was always Arby's. I love Arby's. I always wanted to eat Arby's. And then what do you, what's the first thing you want to do? And it was always go fishing. Like I just loved, loved fishing. So I think the reason for that is that fishing, kind of, kind of like sports in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a metaphor for life, right? When you go fishing, there's things that you need to do that just translate into how you need to live life. I think especially as a Christian. We talk about walking by faith and not by sight, right? We talk about not being in control of things, right? Um, kind of walking by faith, not by sight. I know James was just talking about they went out with his brother's camera and they got it down there. They can see all the fish and they're just right there. And the fish aren't biting, right? You can't control. You might be able to see what's going on, but you are not in control. You can't make the fish bite, right? You're not in control of the world. You can't make things happen. And, and fish have crazy migration patterns and weather affects them and it's just it's a very difficult thing right and it's this like adventure every time and that's kind of how life feels sometimes and I think the Bible is full of fishing language that's that's another thing that I love there's there's a lot going on between especially between Jesus and his disciples it seems like there's a lot of examples of fishing and and we're going to see one of those stories this morning in the call of Peter and if you're, if you're just joining us, we've been in Luke's gospel for the past three months, and it's been a, an exciting journey. We've seen a lot of different things. I'm not going to recap uh, all of that this morning and everything we've looked at, but we're coming to a bit of a turning point this morning in Luke. We've seen Jesus' public ministry begin. We've seen how he's ministered with authority and power, how he's proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God. But so far... The people we've seen in the crowds have pretty much, the people that have been confronted by Jesus' message have pretty much been nameless and faceless people. Uh, we know Peter's mother-in-law, that's kind of like the first person we kind of know who an individual is, but it's just been crowds in general. Today we come to one of the most well-known names and faces in the New Testament, and that is Peter. In a lot of ways, I think many of us can relate to Peter, always trying to be the hero, putting our foot in our mouth every time we go to speak, being overly concerned with what's happening with other people, and wondering if our feet are really put to the fire, would we deny Jesus as well? It's good for us to relate to Peter, especially in this passage. The last couple of weeks I've asked us to put ourselves in the shoes of those in the synagogue in Nazareth, 
those who rejected Jesus, and then those who witnessed Jesus casting out demons and healing people. In the same way this morning, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Peter. Not so we can look inwardly and focus on our own failures, but so that we, like Peter, can encounter the grace of God in Christ as our Savior comes and meets with us. Some questions that we'll be attempting to answer this morning. How does Jesus come to us? How does he come to us? How does he pursue us? How does he confront our fears? And then how should we respond to him in the midst of all of that? How should we respond to Jesus? That's actually a huge theme. We talked about it last week. That's a huge theme that's going to run throughout Luke's gospel. What is the response that Jesus requires? And then kind of similar to that, what does Jesus demand of us? And what does true discipleship look like? So you don't have to write all those down, but those, those are just kind of the, some of the questions that we're going to be attempting to answer this morning. So let's go to our text, Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And please pay attention to the reading of God's word. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that pierces into our souls, that reveals our hearts, that shows us our need for you. Like Peter, let us come humbly before you. Let us fall at your knees. Let us hear from you. Let us confess our sins. Let us admit that we are weak and broken and that we need you. God, would you speak to us? Would you speak your word in a powerful way to our hearts this morning, reminding us of your majesty and of our need for you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to kind of walk through this passage twice. Uh, the first time in just a kind of a real brief recap of, of the events in, in three scenes, kind of just looking at what's happening on the surface. And second walk through, we're kind of going to, we're going to dig a little deeper and we're going to see the significance of this story for both for Peter and for us here today. 
So kind of first, just going through it quickly, Jesus has, he's finished preaching in the synagogues in Judea and Galilee. We see that earlier in chapter 4, verse 4, 43. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus tells us why he came. He came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And we see in verse 44, or in verse... uh, Somewhere, sorry. That reports earlier, reports were going out everywhere about him. Jesus was the talk of the town. Word was spreading like wildfire. And Jesus is healing. He's, he's casting out demons, but he's telling the demons not to speak. And he's, we have this idea of the messianic secret where Jesus is saying, hey, it's not, really, it's not time yet, right? He doesn't want people to come and make him an earthly king. So there's this kind of hiddenness of, of who he is going on. But, but even despite all that, there's a lot of buzz, and people are coming to him. Jesus, here in chapter 5, finds himself on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's called, Luke calls it the Lake of Gennesaret. It's a town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds are coming in. They're pressing in to hear the word of God. And Jesus is, is on the shore, and he's, he's feeling himself kind of like trapped, right? By, because there's all these people. They're, they're coming in. They want to hear the word of God, which is a good thing. Jesus is teaching and preaching with power and authority. People are recognizing that, so they want to hear his word. So Jesus gets into Peter's boat in order to get out into the water a bit to have, so, so that his message can, can go out and that everyone that's standing around can hear it and so he doesn't get crushed by the crowds. So that's kind of the first scene here in verses 1 to 3. That's, what, that's what's happening. And then the next scene shifts to this individual exchange between Jesus and Peter. Now, there's, there's two boats, and there's some other people in the boat, but they, they push out into the water farther, and it's just Jesus and, and Peter that we're, we're focused in on here. After Jesus is done speaking to the crowds, he's proclaiming this good news of the kingdom of God, he tells Pe- Peter, go out uh, into the deep water and to fish again. Peter responds that they've fished all night, they've, they've failed miserably, they haven't caught anything, but he will do this because Jesus told them to. Suddenly, the nets are breaking. The boats are so full of fish that they're beginning to sink. Peter recognizes the power and authority of Jesus. He falls at his feet, and he tells Jesus, essentially, he says, Get away. Depart from me. Get away, because he knows that he is too sinful to be in his presence. The amazement of of everything that has just happened is shared by James and John. So Peter, James, and John, the big three, uh, we're going to see them uh, together a lot throughout uh, the gospel account. Jesus then tells them not to be afraid, and he redirects their whole future. He gives them a whole new mission uh, in life. In the final dramatic scene there in verse 11, they return to shore, and they lay everything down, and they follow him. So we've just read through this account, right? 11 verses. I've just retold it in about two minutes maybe. But this is not how real life works, right? It's not like a movie. You, like we could have all of these events in a movie and have it done in about five minutes, right? But we can't, just, we can't just read through this. We can't just plow through this and be like, oh, these things happen. Great. Let's move on to the next story. As I said, let's get into Peter's shoes here. We need to try to, we got to walk through this story slowly. We need to feel the weight of these events. We need to feel 
these things with an awareness of what's going on, the, the time that went into this, the energy, the emotion that were actually happening in these events. So what's really going on underneath all of this? How is Jesus at work here displaying his power and authority in Peter's life? How does he do that in our lives? And then how does Peter respond? And how are we to respond? So let's walk through this again. Let's dig a little deeper as we attempt to answer these questions. If you're following along in the outline there, in the worship guide, the first point is that Jesus feeds us. Again, the crowds are pressing in, as we've seen, and there is a recognition of the authority in Jesus' words and in his teaching. There's an understanding, at least on the surface level, early on, that Jesus is teaching the word of God in, the way, in a way that nobody else has been. The, the people are amazed at how he teaches in ways that are unlike the way their scribes have been teaching. And there seems to be this legitimate hunger among the people to be fed. They're coming, they want something from Jesus. As Jesus then asks Peter to push him out from the shore, he sits down in the boat and he teaches the crowds. And Peter, just imagine Peter having a front row seat. He's probably just sitting there right next to Jesus on the boat. He's already heard Jesus preaching in the synagogues. He's been around a little bit. But now he's hearing Jesus teaching to this crowd here. From his boat. And notice where Jesus is. He's not in the synagogue, right? He's not in the synagogue among the religious people. He's not in a place where everybody's, you know, dressed neatly and following all the rules and going through all the right steps. Instead, he's out among the common folk. He's in a boat alongside of a fisherman. Now, if you know me, I'm not arguing that uh, we don't need to come here, right, to hear the word of God. I'm not saying just go out and sit in your boat, you know, if James is like, hey, you know what, I just want to go fishing this morning, and I'll find, you know, I'll find somebody else to, to do music, I'm, I'm good, or, or if somebody wants to say, hey, I'm just going to go out in my deer stand this morning, like, that's not okay. <laughs> um, it's okay to go out in your deer stand, it's okay to go out in your boat, but don't go out and be like, I'm just going to meet with Jesus, just, just me and Jesus, right, <clears throat> on Sunday morning while we're here. Go do that any other time, <laughs> please. <laughs> so we're, we see here, though, that the word of God is not bound by some location, right? Jesus doesn't only have to be in the synagogue teaching the word of God. And in a similar way, we don't have to, you know, don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to make some pilgrimage to some holy site to have this transcendent experience and then spend our whole lives wishing we could get back to that place and, and have this great experience. The beautiful truth of the Christian faith is that the God of the universe has communicated himself to us and continues to communicate himself to us through his written word. And we have it. We all hold it in our laps or it's on our phones with us wherever we go, right? We say that scripture is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. It's the only truth that God has given us. It's the only thing that we can have, that we can know him truly, and we can know how we should live our lives. We don't base it on the most popular books or other ideas that are out there. It comes from the word of God alone. And it's not just, again, it's not restricted to some location or to some 
class of certain types of religious people who alone can interpret the scriptures. We can interpret the scriptures. We can read the scriptures and interpret them ourselves because the Holy Spirit of God resides inside of us and teaches us and interprets to us his word. This was really the cry of the Protestant Reformation. We've talked about this in the past. Ad fontes back to the source. We need to get back to the scriptures. We need to get the scriptures in the hands of the common people, right? That was one of Luther's main passions as they were translating the Bible into German and then eventually into many other languages. This emphasis on personal interpretation is very important, but it also doesn't mean that we can just make the Bible say whatever we want, right? We don't just go create our own little, like, philosophy of life or or our own little religion because we say, oh, God's just speaking to me. Every believer, what it means is that every believer can read and by the power of the Spirit, we can interpret correctly and understand the scriptures for ourselves. That's why we encourage personal Bible reading. You need to read your Bible for yourself. If you go throughout your whole week and you don't read your Bible at all and then you just come here and, oh, I'm just going to go hear what the pastor has to say. That's not enough. Read it for yourself. Do your homework. Study the scriptures yourself. One thing I would encourage, we just talked about this in our men's time uh, on worship, and I'll be talking about this a little bit later too, but uh, the chapter in, our, in the book we're going through, Disciplines of a Godly Man, it was on worship, and he was talking about preparing beforehand, preparing on Saturday night, reading the passage, or on Sunday morning. You know, we start a little later. You probably have time on Sunday morning. Just read through the passage. Meditate on the passage. Um, if you, I just put this, just posted this on our website. If you go to our website on the top bar there and go into resources, and it'll take you to Google Drive folder, and there's a Luke folder. I have the sermon schedule through the end of May, so you can go and you can see what the text is going to be each week. So I know I've, some of you before have contacted me, and hey, what's the passage for this week? So I can read and meditate ahead of time. That's a great practice to get into, being ready, being prepared, and digging into God's word yourself. So a question for us to consider kind of along these lines is what are you being fed or who is feeding you? Just as we need a healthy diet in order to stay physically strong and healthy, so we need a healthy spiritual diet in order to stay spiritually healthy. If mac and cheese and Diet Coke are your daily sources of nutrition in real life, you're going to feel the consequences. Maybe for those of you in your early 20s, you can still get away with it. (laughs) But I can't, okay? You will feel the consequences. And just if a quick snack of the Bible is all you have time for, because we're we're too busy, right, running running around, doing all these other things, we're we're too busy to to feed ourselves on the Word of God, it's going to feel like we're spiritually eating mac and cheese and drinking Diet Coke all day, right? We're we're not going to be nourished. Another way to ask the question is, what voices are we listening to? There are so many voices out there that want to drown out the voice of Jesus in our lives. So many distractions that masquerade themselves as good and important. And little by little, if we continue to listen to those voices, the voice of Jesus gets drowned out in our lives. Some of you know, I've shared this with some of you, but this week I have really felt the weight of this challenge. I didn't do anything radical like throw my phone in the garbage, which some days I really want to do that. I didn't go sit alone in a cabin in the woods by myself for a week. 
no time for that, although sometimes I would lo- really love to do that. But <laughs> I've had some serious heart searching before the Lord this week. And I'm not trying to prescribe any remedy for you, but I'm guessing that if you're anything like me, you already know what areas the Lord might be putting his finger on in your life in regards to what, what voices are you listening to? How are you spending your time? What are the things you're, you're spending your time and your, your talents on? Where, where are you getting distracted from listening to the voice of Jesus? And again, it's so easy to do. It feels like, for me, it just feels like little by little, just every, you know, you you add a little here, a little there, and just all of a sudden you're just like, I don't know what's happening. My life is so busy. I'm so distracted by all these things. The question for us is, will we slow down and listen? Will we let Jesus feed our soul with the good food from his word? And again, I'm not saying like, I need to start reading my Bible four hours every day, and I need to start memorizing like whole chapters. It's not, it's not that. I'm not trying to add more to do. But I think it, for me, I'm just realizing like I need to take away all this other stuff so that the time I do spend in the Word is actually more fruitful because I'm not thinking about all these other things, and I'm not distracted by all these other things. So Jesus feeds us. He feeds us from his Word. And we need to come to him and be fed, right? We need to eat. It doesn't just happen, right? Food doesn't just like magically go into our stomachs. We need to do the work of eating. Not only does Jesus graciously feed us with his word, he also fishes for us. That's the second point there. Jesus fishes for us, starting in verse 4. This encounter with Peter is quite incredible. Where does Jesus meet Peter? He meets him at work, right? Here's Peter. They're washing their nets. They've just been, just finished a long night of work, and Jesus comes and meets Peter at work. He doesn't wait for him to put on his Saturday best and come to the synagogue so that he can preach the word of God to him. He goes out to where Peter is. Peter is there with these other guys, hard at work, distracted and discouraged from a long night of fishing. This is, you know, talk about James and I going fishing. I mean, we're just out fooling around, right? That's just recreational. Our livelihoods don't depend upon how many fish we catch or don't catch. But for Peter, it did, right? His livelihood is at stake here. It was a long night of fishing for them, and I don't know how many I can't count the number of times that I've gotten up early, uh, not lately, but kind of back in the day in high school and with my stepdad and some some of his friends, got up early, like 4 a.m., and and drove multiple hours uh, to go to this fishing spot that everybody's been raving about, and you, you spend all this time, you travel, you get there, you fish for like, you know, eight hours, and you're exhausted. I've had days where we've fished for eight hours and basically caught nothing. You know, you go to catch walleye and you get like five sheephead which that just doesn't even count so that's you may as well have not caught anything but kids can you imagine can you imagine going fishing and being in the boat for like four hours and being really tired right and then you come home and you have a little snack and mom and dad say all right time to go back out in the boat we're gonna do it all over again would you be excited about that 
James would. Would any, any other kids who are not like James be excited? No, you wouldn't, would you? You'd be like, I want to take a nap. I want to like do something else, read a book. I don't want to go fishing again. Well, that's basically what's happening with Peter here. He's been out fishing all night, and Jesus says, hey, let's go out again. Peter's got to be like, are you kidding me? Like, no way, I'm exhausted. But Jesus comes, and he pursues Peter. I love verse 5. There's some serious gems in here in verse 5 that I think will help us to really feel the magnitude of what's going on in this passage. Just going to kind of break a few of these down here. Peter says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. This word here for master is only used by Luke in the New Testament. He uses it six times. They're all referring to Jesus. It kind of, in secular Greek, it has a pretty wide range of meaning. But it basically means chief or commander. So what Peter is doing here, he's basically giving control of his boat over to Jesus. He's saying, okay, you are the master of my ship. If you want to do this, Go for it, right? I'm exhausted. I'm done. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Another crazy thing about this scene is we don't even know if Jesus has ever been on a boat before in his life. He wasn't a professional fisherman. He was a carpenter. He grew up in a very arid area where there weren't lakes and rivers. He probably, I mean, this could have been his first time literally ever in his life on a boat. And he gets on this boat and he tells Peter, hey, let's go fishing, right? I'm going to show you how this is done. Jesus, whether or not he's been on a boat, I think we can pretty safely say that he doesn't have the experience fishing that Peter has. This would be like me coming to any of your workplaces and walking in and saying, hey, no, no, Jesse or Andrew, you don't know what you're doing. You're, you're not doing this right at all. Let me show you how to do this. And I, have, I literally have no idea what's going on, but I'm just like telling you like, hey, this is what we're going to do. That was, for Peter, that's probably how this felt. Like, who is this guy coming in telling me how to fish? But obviously Jesus does know what's going on, right? And that's the beauty of all of this. Peter then says that we've toiled all night and took nothing. This word here for toil that means hard work, manual, physically, physically taxing labor. If you've ever worked a job like this, if you've worked a job out in the sun all day, well, they're fishing at night, but if you've, if you've worked a job where you've, you've been sweating, you've worked super hard, physically hard, and you're done with work, again, the last thing you want to do is go back and do it again, right? You need to rest. Your body needs to, to rest and recuperate but Jesus calls him right back out. And notice what Peter's response is. He says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. At your word. And I don't want to over-speculate here. I don't want to claim that Peter fully understands who Jesus is. I think there's a, a process going on here. There's some development going on, going on that they're going to kind of more and more recognize who Jesus is, but I think there is a mustard seed of faith here. I think this is the beginning of trust in Jesus that Peter displays here. And then the last thing is, he says that they will let down the nets. Uh, most scholars think that the nets, the, based on the word, some of the other words for, for nets and some of the other fishing, it's actually a different word. Uh, some of the 
the scholars think that these nets are, were a different kind of net. They were fishing at night. So these were these bigger nets made out of different material that were very visible to the fish. Uh, so that's why they had to fish at night. And it, it didn't work to use these nets during the day. They were also nets that were used for fishing in deeper water. Um, so the, the call of Jesus here to go out in the middle of the day and to cast these nets out, this is kind of the icing on the cake of how ridiculous this whole scene is. Peter would have known, like, hey, this, this isn't going to work. We can't use these nets during the day to catch fish. They're going to see it, and they're just going to swim away. So they, in Peter's mind, there was zero chance that they were going to be productive. They'd already fished all night long. Professional fishermen caught nothing. And so this, is, this whole thing is just crazy. But despite all of Peter's reservations, he trusts Jesus, and he does what Jesus says. And the result we see here is this miraculous catch of fish where Jesus displays his supreme power over nature. He displays his sovereign knowledge, obviously, of where the fish are at. I don't think Jesus just made the fish appear out of nowhere. He actually knew where the fish were. He knew how to get them, get to them, and he displayed his power and his knowledge, something that these professional fishermen did not have the ability to do. We'll look a little more at Peter's individual response in verse 8 in a second. But first I want us to notice the response of all those involved in verse 9. It says, he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. And this is one of those where the the English word doesn't quite capture the significance of this uh, as well. It's actually, there's two different words in the Greek. It literally says that awe or fear seized or overwhelmed them. So we can say that fear seized them. Uh, the, the word for awe and fear is, is basically what you think it is. It's just, it's fear. Um, classic way we think about fear. But this word here for, for seized or overwhelmed, it means to overwhelm emotionally, and it's conceived as an emotion extending on all sides of someone simultaneously. It's basically just like, if you have a feeling of fear that just you feel like like suffocates you and presses in on you, we might say that someone was gripped with fear. That's what's happening here. It's not just like astonished, like, whoa, that's really cool. They're terrified, okay? They're like to the core. They are gripped with fear for what has just happened. And Peter's physical and verbal reply confirms how fearful he was in verse 8. First, he falls down at Jesus' knees And he humbles himself. This is a proper response for what you would do in the presence of someone majestic. It was was how you would respond to a king. You would fall down at their feet. And then he speaks. He says, depart from me. Or again, get away. Get away from me, Jesus. For I am a sinful man. He sees the majesty and the power and the authority of Jesus, and he recognizes that he is not even worthy to be in his presence. Now you think about it, I mean, where's Jesus going to go, right? <laughs> like they're out in a boat in the middle of a lake. But this get away from me is not a, not a literally physical, like, just leave, run, you know, swim back to the shore. It's, I can't be in your presence, Jesus. You are too majestic. You are too holy, and I am a sinful man. Get away from me. Just as he said earlier 
at your word, and we said that that's not necessarily a full confession of faith yet. Um, I don't know that when he says here that I'm a sinful man, that this is necessarily a full confession of sin. I don't know if this, this is a full repentance. I don't know if Peter is actually converted in this moment. I don't really care to speculate on that. But I think, we, again, we see here a mustard seed of faith and repentance. And again, regardless of what's happening, I think the point is that the focus isn't on Peter here. The focus is on Jesus and how Jesus comes to him. How Jesus fishes for him. And also how Jesus comes and fishes for us. We see from this passage how this plays out in multiple ways in our lives. First, Jesus comes to us with his word. He informs our hearts and our minds of the truth of God's word. Next, he asks us to do something that's impossible while he proves his power and authority to do the thing that we can't do on our own. Then he overwhelms us in his presence so that we will humble ourselves before him. And this is all grace. Just as we saw in our catechism questions, our faith and our repentance are a saving grace. One commentator says, Disciples are fish rescued by the saving net of God's grace. I love that picture. Disciples are fish rescued by the saving net of God's grace. Peter gets caught here by the grace of God. And if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you have been caught by the grace of God. You didn't catch yourself. You didn't fish for yourself. You didn't see a net. You didn't see Jesus' net and say, I think I'll go jump in Jesus' net so he can catch me. No, he came and got you. You were swimming the other way, right? He came and he gathered you up in his net by his grace and he caught you to himself. And if you're not a Christian, you're the fish in this big dangerous sea swimming in the other direction. Being caught by Jesus is your only hope. Will you hear his word? Will you fall at his knees in submission to his power and authority over your life? Will you put your life in his hands and let him redirect your future? Will you lay aside your hopes and your dreams? This question, really, a lot of those questions are for all of us, right? Whether we're committed disciples or whether we're not yet Christians. Those are questions that we all need to wrestle with. So we see how Peter and James and John responded to Jesus' call on their lives. The third point is that Jesus frees us to fish and follow. Jesus frees us to fish and follow. Beginning in verse, um, in the second half of, of verse 10 there when Jesus speaks, he says, do not be afraid. The first thing that Jesus does is he frees them from their fears. Fear of judgment for their sin, fear of the majesty and power of God. Jesus sets them free and he sets us free with the words, do not be afraid. If you've been with us as we've been going through Luke, we saw the angel Gabriel come to Zechariah in the temple. Zechariah is afraid and 
Gabriel says, do not be afraid. Gabriel comes to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. And Mary is terrified. And Gabriel says, do not be afraid. There's another great vision where this statement is used. In Revelation chapter 1, John has a terrifying vision of Jesus in all his majesty. And he writes, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the good news of the kingdom of God, my friends. Jesus died in our place for our sin and he is alive forevermore. He has the keys to death and Hades, and he has unlocked the prison door and set us free. Again, as we saw a couple weeks ago, what Jesus is doing here in his ministry is fulfilling Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 that he read in the synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's coming to Peter here and he's saying, Peter, you are free. You're free from your fear. You're free from your guilt. You're free to turn and live a new way. He rewrites Peter's whole life, and he rewrites our lives too. He redirects our futures, and we see that in the very next phrase. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. This phrase here, from now on, it's a break with the past. It's a, it's a turning, it's a, it's a 180. It's going in a new direction and starting over. From now on, you will be catching men. And James and I were talking about this. This is kind of where the fishing analogy starts to break down, right? Because what do you do? You go out and you catch fish, and they die, right? You put them in the boat, you come home to eat them, right? That's the whole point. So how does this whole fishing analogy work with, with discipleship and with catching men? Well, this is really interesting here. Luke uses a word here for catching that is not the same use the word that he uses for catching fish. This is a compound of two words that actually have nothing to do with fishing. It's a combination of the word alive and the word catch or capture. Uh, the capture part and, and, and this word in general is used in, it's used in the Old Testament in terms of war and hunting. And hunting as in terms of catching animals alive, capturing them. Mostly, most of the time it has a military meaning uh, to capture prisoners alive and to actually spare their lives. It's taking people alive and not killing them. So this is a beautiful picture here of the mercy and the grace of God. Jesus comes to us to save us, to free us, and then to recommission us to go out and to catch others for him to literally go and capture people alive and bring them to him that's the type of fishing that's the type of catching when you talk about fishing for men that is what is pictured here and it's all his work that he invites us to go out and be a part of 
But it doesn't just stop with the evangelism part. It doesn't just stop with sharing the good news. It's not enough to just say that we caught some people. Jesus demands our whole lives. And we see that here in Peter, James, and John's response to Jesus in verse 11. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. And this is discipleship 101. Now, obviously, if you've, if you've read through the Gospels and you've seen Jesus interacting with people, we see things like, you know, sell everything you have and, and come and follow me, right? <clears throat> There's a lot of wrestling that we might have as we read that. Like, do I really have to sell all my possessions? Do I have to just go and, like, wander the earth and talk to people about Jesus? Well, we don't have to do that. We don't have to abandon our families. We don't have to move to some remote corner of the earth to be a missionary. He may call some of you to do that, and if he does, hallelujah. But if he does do that, that's a a special call on your life. That's an overflow of the life of discipleship, but it doesn't start there. You don't do those things in order to be a disciple. You do those things because you are a disciple. And now Jesus here isn't destroying vocation. He isn't saying, leave your job, sell everything you have, and go. No, we need people doing ordinary jobs in this world, being disciples for Jesus, right? You can leave everything you have and follow him and stay at the job that he already has you at. So don't believe that lie that there's some... There's some extra level of discipleship that if I really want to be a true Christian, I just have to sell all my stuff and move, you know, wherever. I think that, I don't want to go off too much here, but I think there's, there's a, a Western individualism in that emphasis, right? Like, I'm going to go be a missionary wherever. I'm going to, I'm going to sell all my things. And that's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to live in community, to to metaphorically sell all our possessions and come follow him together as a people, right? That's, that's how, talking about how we live generously, how we give to others. How Sure, give things away. We should be giving things away. But you don't just like sell your house and go, you know, couch surfing with all your friends or whatever. No, we need to be responsible and we need to provide for our families. But it's not this individual focus And I want to argue along with this that I don't think people are primarily caught by Jesus in isolation. Jesus doesn't just go out and like send us out, right? Here, fish for one, fish for one, fish for one, fish for one. It happens that way sometimes. That's not the primary way of how people are caught for Jesus. Again, I would argue that it happens in community. what's What's my point here? This right here, right, what we are doing, gathered corporate worship, week in and week out, this, I believe, is our best opportunity to do the type of fishing that Jesus lays out here. As we prepare here this morning, as we prepare to transition into our time for the Lord's Supper, this is going to be a little bit longer of a transition, but I want us to think about how these things apply to us as we gather corporately for worship. I said that we had a, a great conversation at our men's night, uh, men's time this week about worship. It was particular, we talked about the importance of our, of our liturgy as we retell the story of the gospel week in and week out. And again, if you go to that resources folder, 
uh, on our website and go to Google Drive in the Luke folder. There's an article, there's a PDF in there. It's called Worship That Awakens. Uh, it's an article by a guy named Alan Noble. He's a ruling elder in the PCA. It was in our, the PCA's magazine, By Faith magazine. And he argues in this article, Worship That Awakens, um, and again, if you were with us this summer, we read through the book Disruptive Witness. Uh, this, this article is just kind of a, a, a summary version of that whole book. And so if you read this article and really like it, I would encourage you to read the book. It's fantastic. But he argues that secularism and technology of distraction have made it difficult for modern people to understand and participate fully in the act of corporate worship. So secularism and distraction of technology make it hard for us to to fully participate in the act of corporate worship. And then he makes this bold claim. He says, but the church has the resources to push back against both secularism and distraction through the historical reformed liturgy. In these liturgies, we are called to practice an understanding of creation, ourselves, and God that disrupts our modern assumption, our our default modern assumptions. Therefore, the good news is that Sunday morning may be one of the most meaningful periods of evangelism in the 21st century. Let me say that again. And if you don't believe this, I want to encourage you to to think about this and wrestle with this. I would make the same argument. The good news is that Sunday morning, right here, our gathered corporate worship may be one of the most meaningful periods of evangelism in the 21st century. Now, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't be out there sharing the gospel with people and doing individual evangelism, but in our secular and distracted age, this is what people need to see. They need to see that the gospel is real. They need to see us week in and week out living out the story of the gospel. So let me, let me drill a little deeper here and, and try to make my argument. And I'm going to try to make it from this passage, okay? Call to worship, right? Jesus is teaching the crowds the word of God. He's calling them. Confession of sin. Peter falling at, his, at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Assurance of pardon. Jesus saying, Peter, do not be afraid benediction from now on you will be catching men go right go fishing and follow jesus i'm not just making this stuff up so you guys will think it's cool to be presbyterian i actually believe this is true and i believe it's really important and we don't only see this storyline of the gospel throughout our entire service with this this arc of the gospel that we, we try to retell this story. We see it every other week when we, when we gather for the Lord's Supper as well. Kind of the classic text that we read, and I'll read it in a minute here. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's instructions on the Lord's Supper. We see this same thing play out, and it's not in the exact order. But Jesus calls us with his words about his body and blood. We're reminded of our need to examine ourselves and confess our sins, right? To examine our hearts. We're reminded that God's judgment has already taken place and we will not be condemned. That's our assurance of pardon. And then we go out living lives that proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the benediction. 
So we see this arc of the gospel. We see this kind of, we see this story being played out. And we get to come and live that out week in and week out together. Again, if you, if you read Alan Noble's book, Disruptive Witness, he talks a little bit about it in the article. But he, he talks about some different practices uh, that, that disrupt the culture, that are, that are witnesses to the culture that people see and are like, what the heck are you Christians doing? You're so weird. This is one of them, right? Coming, eating bread and drinking wine and saying, the God of the universe meets with us as we do this. And we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the world. We're coming, we're communing with God, we're communing with one another. How weird is that, right? But it is a disruptive witness. It's a disruptive witness to our secularized and distracted age. Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to come to the table, let us examine ourselves. Let us eat and drink and commune with the Lord Jesus as he feeds and nourishes our souls, as he meets with us as he has promised to do.